0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite your attention to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49 our text today. The title is, Heaven's Building Code. Heaven's Building Code. Luke 6 46. I don't know about anyone else, but uh, I personally had a wonderful time studying for these messages in Luke's Gospel. This morning we come to the final pericope of the first section of Luke, ending here in chapter 6, which is really the conclusion of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. It is a summation of the major points that he's made in the sermon, but not only in the sermon, but a summation of his preaching throughout his earthly ministry. Because throughout His earthly ministry Jesus called upon people to repent of their sins and He consistently preached with that clear pattern of a path set before a person and they were to take one of two paths and whether He called it two gates or two paths or two kingdoms what Jesus surely meant is that you were either for Him or against Him. It reminds us of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament up on Mount Carmel what he called the nation of Israel together and he said how long will you hesitate between two opinions if God is God serve Him. if he's not serve Baal that's the sort of preacher Jesus was now that sort of unmuddied clarity is not very well received in our modern culture because our modern culture wants to believe and perpetuates the notion that everyone can be right at the same time and all roads lead to heaven Jesus of course rejected that sort of Illogical theological nonsense. And here in verses 46 through 49, he gives his listeners one more example of that clear choice. This time, it comes in the form of two houses. Let's read the text. Jesus is speaking, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now Jesus begins with a rhetorical question. He's addressing this question to a group of people who claim to be His disciples. That is, they self-identified as, yes, we're followers of Christ. In fact, many of them apparently called Him Master or Lord. And so, Jesus asked them, why are you calling me Lord? Why are you saying you're my disciple but you're not obeying me? Because a true disciple obeys his master. Jesus knew their heart as He knows every man's heart today. And apparently some, if not most, of that self-described group of disciples, their profession of their faith was only from the lips and not from the heart. And so he said, why do you call me Lord? Now we're going to examine Heaven's Building Code with three questions today. The first one is this, obedience or admiration? There are people in every epoch of history, including our own, who have seemingly a great admiration for Jesus. I say that because they paint pictures of what they think Jesus looked like. They erect monuments. They write songs. They name hospitals and schools after Jesus. Yet the consistent testimony of the Scripture is that genuine faith in Christ is proven through obedience. Matthew 15.8, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. James 2.17, Faith without works is dead. That is, it's not a real faith. Jesus is not looking for admirers. He is looking for worshipers. See, an admirer looks from afar with a favorable or positive opinion. But a worshiper enthusiastically hears, believes, and obeys. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now for the rest of this chapter, chapter 6, Jesus illustrates The difference between an admirer and a worshiper. He does so through a simple parable. Two men who build two houses. Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. Now you know that I uh, prepare my sermons, at least the outlines, at least six months if not a year in advance. But it's amazing the Lord's providence and sovereignty. The state of Texas is facing terrible flooding right now. And what is happening all over South Texas is that people are finding out how well built their house was. And what happens in life and certainly in judgment is they found out what their life, their spirit, their soul is attached to. But the thing about Jesus' parables that tripped up so many in his day and trips up many today is that the vast majority of human beings devote precious little time to the spiritual realm. See, the Bible teaches that uh, we exist in more than one realm. There is the physical or the temporal, we might call the sensual, because we relate to it through our senses, what we see hear, taste, touch, and smell. And that's all most people know about, and that's all they make provision for. But the Bible says that there is another realm of existence that's much more important than this one because it is eternal in nature, and that is the spiritual realm. And so, Jesus taught about the spiritual realm using illustrations from the physical realm. He did so in these little stories called parables. But most people only understood them in terms of the physical, and so they were confused. I'll give you a few examples. Remember that man Nicodemus, Who came to Jesus under cover of darkness. We talked about last week, John chapter 3. Jesus told him you must be born again, right? Nicodemus says, can I enter a second time into my mother's womb? He was thinking in the physical. Jesus was talking about regeneration, rebirth of the soul. Jesus said you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, Jesus wasn't giving a lesson in uh, enology, which is the study of of wine. Uh, He was teaching them a spiritual lesson. That this gospel, salvation by grace through faith, is not conducive to Judaism or any other ism. You can't just attach it to the religion you already have because it's altogether new in the spiritual realm. One of his most famous parables was the parable of the soils, where he said a sower went out to sow. Of course, the seed is the gospel. The soil are men's hearts, their spirits. But only that soil which had been prepared and which was good soil produced fruit. See, he uses the physical to describe the spiritual. And so here he is again doing that in terms of a house, really two houses. So when he speaks of these two men building these two houses, he's speaking not of architecture, but of their lives. Specifically, both sides of their lives, the physical and the spiritual. Now, to be sure, Jesus is concerned about the physical. That's why we pray for healing for our friends who are sick. We serve a sympathetic Savior who has been tempted. He's suffered in every way we have, and so He's sympathetic with our infirmities. But He also knows that the body is very temporary. And so He instructs us to put more emphasis on the spiritual. And so He's talking about the spiritual primarily here in this parable. We often hear this parable taught in a very simplistic way, such as into every life a little rain must fall. Now, is that true? Well, yes, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. We know that everyone goes through hard times, whether they're a Christian or not. Job says, as sparks fly upward, so man is made for trouble. That's not really the point here, as we'll see. That is true that a Christian's life, when it's attached to Jesus deals with tragedy and difficulty and sickness and pain very differently from someone who does not know Christ. But that is true because we know as Christians that the worst thing that can happen in a storm is that we would die, we would lose our physical lives, but the Bible teaches that not even death can separate us from the love of Christ, right? We preachers have a talent for trivializing the momentous. complicating the obvious. And I don't want to do that today. I don't want to trivialize this passage of Scripture by saying into every life a little rain must fall. That's not the point. One man built his house the wrong way, and his life, his soul was destroyed. One man built his house the right way, and he was spared and protected. Now these men though had some things in common. You'll notice that both heard the same message. The first man heard and acted accordingly. The second man heard and did nothing. Both of these men set out to provide for their soul. They built a house. One just built it on a steady and firm foundation. One did not. And as far as we know both of these houses looked sound from the outside. That is when the neighbors walked by one of them was not clearly inferior to the other. It was only when the floods came that the truth was told. But you note that important difference. One house was built on a firm foundation. It's called here the rock, and the other did not. Now that leads to our second question. Bedrock or sand? Now bedrock is not superficial. The word superficial means on the surface only. But the Scripture says this man dug deep. Now be careful with that sentence here because some have understood that to mean a works-based salvation. That is, if you're going to make it to heaven, you've got to work hard for it. You've got to dig deep. That is not what he's saying here. We know that scripture is interpreted by scripture. The scripture clearly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what does he mean? It means that you have to make sure that your life, your soul, is firmly attached to that which is stable and immovable. Now I love preaching about the attributes of God. In fact, when I first became the pastor here for 10 weeks, we studied some of the attributes of God. And my favorite attribute of God I'd be careful about saying that, because they're all great is His immutability. God is immutable. That means he does not change. He's the same yesterday today and forever. That signifies stability, right? What else can we say about that on planet Earth or in the universe that it never changes? Only of God. That's why when the Old Testament writers ascribe titles to God, oftentimes they use the word rock. For example, Psalm 1914, David wrote, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock. In the New Testament, when Jesus was addressing his disciples, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter, speaking for the twelve, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon or Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And upon this rock, that is the rock of your confession that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. The rock is Jesus and building on the rock simply means laying a firm foundation for your soul by placing all of your weight, all of your faith, totally on the person and the work of Jesus. Now it's at this point that biblical Christianity and Christians diverge from the culture. Because we live in and among a people in this culture who have an admiration for Jesus. Jesus. I very rarely have come across a person who is antagonistic towards the person of Jesus. In fact, many people not claiming to be Christians have a high view of Jesus and his ethics. But they fail, apparently, to read some of the things that he said. Because Jesus presented a very exclusive gospel, didn't he? In fact, he said he's the only way. That, That all other isms and all other paths were futile and vain, because they did not lead to eternal life. And if there's one thing that will get you crossways with our culture, it's claiming to have exclusive truth about anything. And Jesus did. In fact, uh, some of the old hymn writers understood that about Jesus. One of my favorites was a man by the name of Edwin Moat. Edwin Moat was a carpenter and a cabinet maker until he was 55 years old. And at 55, God called him to be a pastor, and he became a excellent pastor and he was a hymn writer and he wrote this particular lyric my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness i dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on jesus name own christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand what he was saying is that anything other than christ that a person could build their life on any philosophy Any ism, any strategy is ultimately futile. And that leads to our final question, which is the ultimate question of life. Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? Look at verse 49 here in chapter 6. He has talked about the man who dug deep and attached his house to the bedrock, what his life is like, and now he contrasts that with the other man. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Now let's get right down to it, shall we? Jesus is talking about God's certain coming judgment. Friends, he's talking about heaven and hell. And when God's judgment comes, as it surely will, those who are attached to Jesus by faith will not be affected. You know my favorite verse in the Bible. There's going to be making favorites again. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is God's wrath, right? There's a difference between God's chastening and his wrath. The Bible says, for those the Lord loves, He chastens. If you're truly a child of God and you go off into sin, God's going to bring you back. And sometimes that's going to be painful, but that is not God's wrath. That is His chastening. God's wrath, His ultimate judgment, is reserved for those who reject Him as Lord, who do not receive His free gift of salvation. When Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he says there's no wrath to be feared for those who are born again, because we are covered, as it were, by Christ. He has taken our punishment for us on the cross. Abraham, in the Old Testament book of Genesis, was informed by God that he was about to judge two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, wipe them off the map. And Abraham asked God a question Will you destroy the righteous? with the wicked. You see Abraham had a nephew named Lot who had a family there and Lot worshipped the true God. Of course the answer to that question was no, God would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He always makes a way for their escape. And he led Lot and his two daughters out of that wicked city up into the mountain before the fire fell. That's not the only example. I'm thinking of Noah and the flood. God had determined to judge all flesh, the Bible says, to wipe out life from the earth because man only sinned and thought about sitting continually. But there was one righteous man, Noah, and he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and God provided for him a way of escape. He told him to build the ark, and he did. And when the rain came, Noah and his family were preserved comfortably and in the dry. I'm thinking of the Hebrew children who for 400 years were enslaved, forced into hard labor down in Egypt, and they prayed to God for relief, and he heard them, and he sent Moses, and he sent ten plagues, one after the other, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not release them. And the tenth plague was the death angel. And yet God provided a way that even when the death angel passed over, for all of those who had the blood of the Lamb applied to their doorposts, They were preserved. You see the pattern of scripture. God provides a way for his own to escape his wrath. But don't take that to mean that he will not judge. He will surely judge. Peter says in the last days scoffers will come with their scoffing. And they'll say where is the sign of his coming? I thought you said Jesus was coming back. But everything goes on just as it always has. And Peter says that fails to come to their attention that with the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day. And the people in Noah's day were making the same kind of accusations when the water began to fall. He will surely judge. Now, I'm aware that that is a very unpopular truth today. In fact, it is a little bit embarrassing, seemingly, to a lot of pastors. This week I was in my car driving, had the radio on, and... A pastor came on, apparently had purchased a one-minute time slot on this particular station, and he used that one minute to apologize to unbelievers for pastors who preached God's coming judgment. And said, if you'll come to our church, we won't treat you that way. And I thought to myself, if pastors who preach God's coming judgment need to apologize to sinners, then the weatherman needs to apologize to the people of South Texas for telling the hurricane's on the way. Because that's what we do. We warn people to flee and avoid the wrath of God. And I've been reading Jonathan Edwards this week, you might can tell. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards was a great pastor of the 1700s who God used in a great way to bring about a great awakening in this country. We've been praying for that here. But that great awakening came through preaching on the certain judgment of God. This is what Edwards said in one of his famous sermons. Listen, the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course, when once it is set loose. It is true, the judgment against your evil works has not been executed yet. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. There's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press forward hard. And if God should withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. End quote. He's right. Every time I go to the Southwest and drive over or walk across the Hoover Dam, I remember the words of Jonathan Edwards. That Colorado River has been building up against that great dam and Lake Mead has come to be one of the great interior lakes of the country and he says God's wrath is like that. That stream has been building up and building up and building up pressure and one day the floodgates are gonna fly open and the wrath of God is gonna be poured out on all humanity but because it hasn't yet, People delude themselves into thinking it won't happen. Peter says that's what the people in Noah's day thought. That's what the people in Sodom and Gomorrah's day thought. And that's what people are going to be thinking all the way up until the trumpet sounds. What about you, dear friend? What have you built your house on? Have you dug deep and made sure that your faith and trust have been firmly placed on Christ alone? Or are you depending on something else? Maybe you're depending upon your own good reputation. The fact that you are morally superior than to some Christians that you know. Or maybe you're depending on some ism that you've been studying other than Christianity. Hear me please. You have placed your life and built it upon shifting sands. And when the judgment of God comes as it surely will, you will not stand. The house came down and great was the ruin of it. So what do you do? Flee to Jesus. It's your only hope. Flee to Jesus. Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to avoid the wrath of God. In fact, the scripture says what Jesus is doing today is that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for his children. To intercede means to stand between. Sometimes when people say they're saved, I say, what were you saved from? And you need to know you were saved primarily from the righteous wrath of God. And you keep on being saved every day because of the intercession of Jesus. Because his blood has covered you and you are in Christ and you are joined to him in some way that I cannot explain, you never have to fear the wrath of God. But if you're not in Christ, you're not attached to him at that bedrock level, I must tell you, I must warn you, flee to Jesus. God's judgment is sure. It may not happen today, but it will happen. Repent of sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe on Jesus. Receive his free gift of salvation and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your word. And it's a hard word today, but it's a true word. Jesus preached repentance and faith. He preached hell. He preached judgment. Father, we must preach it as well in our day. Father, I I would pray if there's even one person here today who has not built their life upon the bedrock of Jesus Christ and faith in Him, that they would despair of whatever foundation they've laid because it all really comes to nothing in the end. No matter what it's called, it's vain. So Father, I pray by Your Spirit You would call some here today to confess their sins, to turn from those sins and to hate them and to receive Jesus by faith into their heart and life today and begin a walk of discipleship with him. Father, I thank you for many in this room who have been saved for many years and who walk faithfully with Christ. Father, help us to be reminded there are many in our community who the wrath of God abides on. Father, we pray for them. We pray for revival. We pray for awakening. We pray for a movement of your spirit that our friends and coworkers and teammates, Father, would be awakened from their slumber and see their desperate circumstance and call on Christ. Use us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.